Coming up on Stu Does America, Rudy Giuliani tells us about his history fighting against the New York City Mafia and why Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization. And who'd have thought that adding woke restrictions to every word that comes out of our mouth would have a negative effect on comedy. Two legendary comedians have come out against political correctness. We'll get into that. And Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review helps us untangle the lies in the latest relief bill. If you're watching me on YouTube right now, thank you. Make sure to get your friends and family to subscribe and be sure to hit the like button on this video right now before you forget or before I say something that pisses you off. And if you're listening on podcast to avoid having to look at my face, good call. Be sure to rate and review. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. And don't forget to consider a subscription to Blaze TV. Just head to blazetv.com slash stew. Be sure to use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. So many of our state government leaders are awful. Specifically, Andrew Cuomo is awful.com. But do you know who's not awful? America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani. He joins us tonight. Stu does America. Here's the thing. It's going to be hard to believe. Not all New York politicians are awful. Sure, Hillary Clinton is awful. Chuck Schumer is awful. Bill de Blasio is awful. And of course, Andrew Cuomo is awful. By the way, I hear from a lot of you that say, yes, Andrew Cuomo is awful. But Chris Cuomo is worse. And that is a great point. That's why now you and your friend or you and your spouse, whatever, can proudly wear in tandem. Andrew Cuomo is awful. And Chris Cuomo is worse. T-shirts, mugs and my favorite masks. Mm-hmm. What better way to say F you to the entire Cuomo family than by going to andrewcuomoisawful.com or, you know, starting today, chriscuomoisworse.com. Some people will say, hey, what happens if I just get the Chris Cuomo is worse t-shirt and I'm not standing with anyone who has an Andrew Cuomo is awful t-shirt? And it's a good question, but it still works well. If someone comes up to you and says, you know, Chris Cuomo is worse than what? You could just say, yes. No matter what you're thinking of at this very moment, yes, Chris Cuomo is worse than that. And I can say this with complete confidence. If you have both these T-shirts on, um, especially somewhere in public, I can say this. If you tweet a picture to me of it at Stu Does America and I see this thing, there's no way I'm not putting it on the show. I don't even know how I would resist such a thing. So please, if you go to Andrew Cuomo is awful or Chris Cuomo is worse.com, uh, you get your pictures together and it'll be great. OK, that was a bit of a tangent. I, I, I know what I was kind of saying was before not all New York politicians are awful. But these days, it's kind of hard to believe that. For example, Bill de Blasio. Here's his Twitter profile, by the way. Mayor Bill de Blasio at NYC mayor fighting every day to make New York the fairest city in America. He, him, his... Is there anything more cringeworthy than this lumbering jackass trying to show how woke he is by adding his pronouns to his Twitter profile? Everyone knows you're a Mr. Mr. Mayor. And as dumb as it is for every boring white dude to add what gender they are to their profile page, I'm actually more annoyed that you have to express all the different versions of it. He, him, his, 
Once you say he, we all know it will be a him. And once you say he, him, everyone knows it will be a his. Sincerely, are there any examples of someone who would be a he, him, hers? Hey, there's Bill. Should we help him move that chair? Yes, let's help him move her chair. Doesn't make any sense. Now, de Blasio has been in a fight with Andrew Cuomo. Uh, this is not a new situation, but it's like a Patriots versus Cowboys game. Absolutely no one to root for. Cuomo has noticed that. Yeah, that's right. That's what I said. Cuomo has noticed that all the people that pay taxes in New York have fled the city because they apparently don't want to be prisoners in their own homes. It's shocking. So they've gone to the Hamptons and to Connecticut and to New Jersey to escape. I know plenty of people in New York that have done pretty much just this. Cuomo then explained in his press conference uh, and in the process, basically, I mean, watch this clip. He basically validated the entire Republican economic agenda. I literally talk to people all day long who are now in the Hamptons house, who also lived here or in their Hudson Valley house or in their Connecticut weekend house. And I say, you got to come back. When are you coming back? We'll go to dinner. I'll buy you a drink. Come over, I'll cook. They're not coming back right now. Mm. And you know what else they're thinking? Just be you. If I stay there, they pay a lower income tax because they don't pay the New York City surcharge. Mm. Uh, what a what a wonderful invitation from Andrew Cuomo. How could anyone resist? According to the New York Post, Cuomo also added, quote, the wealthiest 1% of the Empire State's population picks up roughly 50% of the state's tax burden. Of course, that's not all. As the Blaze points out, quote, high taxes are not the only reason absent New Yorkers may not want to return. The city has seen a sharp spike in crime, already surpassing last year's 777 shootings as of August 1st. While the city council and Mayor Bill de Blasio cut the NYPD's budget by $1 billion in reaction to the George Floyd protests. Yeah, the whole tax the rich and defund the police thing is going to work out really well. When de Blasio heard Cuomo's comments, he fired back, saying, I was troubled to hear this concept that because wealthy people have uh, a set of concerns about the city, that we should accommodate them, that we should build our policies and approaches around them. Oh, you wouldn't want to help some of your constituents. They have too much money to need laws that actually, I don't know, hit them in a fair way. It's an interesting point by Bill. He continued. That's not how it works around here anymore. Mm. This city is for New Yorkers. This city is for people who oh. live here, work here, fight to make this place better, fight through this crisis. Yes, this strange set of concerns about the city that the wealthy have. Oh, gosh. That they, I don't know, should have their money and maybe not have it stolen by the mayor. That an occasional building might be open for them to go into. And that they won't be shot in the streets or have their apartment set on fire. These are all crazy rich person's concerns, as you know. De Blasio finished up. There's a lot of New Yorkers who are wealthy, who are true believers in New York City and will stand and fight with us. And there's some who may be fair weather friends. Mm. Look, Bill, if they were fair weather friends, they would have left the city the second you were elected. They've had to deal with you and your nonsense all of this time. And their bandages, bandaged fingers still kept wobbling back to the fire. I don't know why, but they did for a long time. But it wasn't always this way in New York. 
long before he was working with Donald Trump as president. And before 9-11, Rudy Giuliani led a renaissance in the city of New York. And it was what he did before he became mayor that made that renaissance possible. This era of Giuliani's life is featured in a new Netflix documentary called Fear City, New York versus the Mafia. I always hated the Mafia. They do terrible things to society. They began by exploiting Italian immigrants, like my grandfathers. One was a barber, the other was a tailor. And uh, the minute they established a little business and made a little money, they would come in and say, give us 30%. And you'd say, no, I'm not gonna give, why did I give you 30%? Because we're gonna burn you down if you don't give us 30%. We're gonna beat you up, or we're gonna beat up your kid. When I began the position of US attorney, I was reading all the files that I could read about the mafia cases. I got to the section about the commission. The commission is the executive board of the mafia. They're the highest body that governs the mafia in New York. I mean, it's run like a business. It's like a board meeting. So I envisioned the idea of using Rico to go after the bosses of all these families in one very big case, the commission case. It's a documentary worth watching. It's truly an insane story. And up next, we'll talk to the guy that led the team that took down the mob, Rudy Giuliani. Trying to sell your home is challenging, especially right now. Uh, it depends on where you are, of course, uh, but some of the stuff with, with between coronavirus and, the, and the, the violence and riots in the streets and the economy being so bad, it's just tough to do any of this stuff right now. More than ever, you need an advantage of having a really good real estate agent. That's why realestateagentsitrust.com exists. Uh, you might know a man who works here. His name is Glenn Beck. He started this company a while ago, um, and as, he, as you may know, he's up for the Radio Hall of Fame. You can vote for him at RadioVote.com. Uh, but he's going for the Radio Hall of Fame, and that's kind of what Real Estate Agents I Trust is. It's a Hall of Fame for real estate agents. You don't have to worry about whether these guys have good records. You don't have to worry about whether they're trustworthy or whether they know what they're doing. They all do, because they wouldn't be on RealEstateAgentsITrust.com if they didn't. Uh, you'll be in the hands of the most capable, experienced people who will see your selling process through to the very end. If you're looking to purchase a home, be sure to partner yourself with the best. Name says it all, realestateagentsitrust.com. Learn more at realestateagentsitrust.com. It's realestateagentsitrust.com. Joining us now, America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani. Thanks so much for coming on the program, <laughs> Mr. Mayor. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Very well. Very well. Thank you. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, as I'm watching this documentary on Netflix, uh, Fear City, that you're featured in, it strikes me from an outsider's view, you've sort of had several different eras of your career, right? Like the work you're doing with the president now, you, as mayor, of course, through 9-11. And before that, you took out the five families of the mafia. And as I'm watching this documentary, I couldn't help but think to myself, this was an objectively insane idea. I mean, how on earth did you think <laughs> you could take out five families of the mafia simultaneously? Of course, I didn't do it by myself. I did it with a tremendous amount of help from the FBI, who were, who were the main investigators, also the New York City Police Department. I put them together in a task force, and I got tremendous help from Attorney General Bill Smith and... and uh, and Director Webster of the FBI, they gave me a virtual little army. And uh, part of it was getting into their homes. 
we, we were able to uh, get into Paul Castellanos. He called it his White House. Mm. It was on a hill in Staten Island. We were able to get into Fat Tony Salerno Social Club in East Harlem. We were able to get into uh, another guy's uh, Jaguar because he used to have his meetings in his car, believe it or not. Yeah. So one night the FBI, the car was left out. The FBI got in the trunk. And for eight months, it was a recording studio for us. Wow. So um, it was a great deal of use of what we call Title Three wiretaps. You know, unlike Jim Comey, they were all honest, <laughs> uh, well-researched. We had no unverified information in them. And a judge overlooked them every, every, um, every month. So you had to always get current information. I, I get really angry when I see what Comey did with the FISA warrant because I literally was up until four or five o'clock in the morning, many, many nights going over the affidavits to make sure they were absolutely accurate. Uh, it was interesting. That was the mafia I was going after. Yeah. He was just trying to frame a president. <laughs> yeah, the, which is kind of a big deal. We'll get to some of that here in a second. Um, you know, it was interesting watching you go through this, and, and you know, they portrayed the whole, a good chunk of the team that worked on this. And you had a, uh, a, some familiar faces like Michael Chertoff, uh, but a very young uh, and inexperienced, very talented, but young and inexperienced staff to go through something like this. What was that like working with them? Well, I mean, maybe um, everybody was so young, they couldn't be, they were too young to be afraid, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember Yogi Berra telling me that about the D-Day invasion. I asked him, were you frightened? And Yogi Berra, who was part of the D-Day invasion, believe it or not, told me I was too young to be frightened. <laughs> and that really, there's something, there's something to that. You think you're immortal. Yeah, they threatened to kill me. Um, before I started, the Sicilian Mafia put out a contract for $800,000 to kill me. And then toward the end, when I finished, uh, Carmine Persico, who's one of the heads of the five families, he was kind of angry because I had him put in solitary confinement because he was trying to run his family from jail. So he put out a contract to kill me, and it was for only $400,000. And I was really upset. I said, all that work, we, you know, not only did we put the, the heads of the five families in jail, we put another 300 of them in jail. Mm. We took away the Fulton Fish Market from them. We took away the, we took away the um, whole private sanitation business. We took, we took the Teamsters Union away from them. We had a, a, everyone thrown out of the board of the Teamsters Union under RICO. And we had an outside independent monitor come in. I think, he, I think he ran it for about nine years before it, it got out of all the casinos. The mafia owned a good many of the, Las Vegas casinos, mm -hmm. and they wandered the money through the Central States Pension Fund, which was the pension fund of the Teamsters Union. That's a deal they made with Hoffer way, way back. Hmm. Uh, so uh, I guess one of the things that's interesting about watching this and, and reliving it a little bit, you were there. It's hard to imagine a city like New York could possibly be taken over like this. I mean, the, the fact that this they had so much influence in all uh, construction projects and millions and millions of dollars on the line. How did this even happen? It happened uh, starting in about 1931 when Lucky Luciano uh, really got the commission together. And uh, it was they had always been killing each other quite a bit. They decided after they killed the two prevailing heads of the families, that instead of killing each other, they'd have this commission that would meet regularly 
and they'd work out their disputes the way business people do. Mm. Now, they didn't always work out their disputes that way. Uh, they still did a good deal of uh, killing when they couldn't work it out that way, but it probably reduced the killing quite a bit. And it was uh, something like a business structure. And New York had five families. The rest of the country, there was only one family in the major cities, you know, like in uh, Raymond Patriarch, it was in New England and Boston. And uh, there was a family in, there was a family in uh, Philadelphia and a family in Pittsburgh and a family in Cleveland and a big family in Chicago. But the, but the real set, this real nerve center of the mafia in America was New York. Mm. And they were the richest. And they also at one point controlled a lot of judges. They had, um, they would get judges appointed. And then therefore, when they got in trouble, when they got in trouble, they were, they were, they were, they were uh, always uh, able to um, kind of get themselves out because they had something on the judge. Mm. Um, it was really... <laughs> yeah, no, sorry. Uh, yeah, so uh, let, me, uh, let me take it here. When you're talking about Islamic terrorism, right, I think one of the most important things helped our military and informants are when good Muslims stand up and tell the truth and work against the extremists. Was there an element of that with you? I thought, thought I sensed that at one point in the documentary where, you know, you're an Italian guy and you're, you're making, you're trying to, in a way, kind of clear the names of Italians for good Italians. Well, I think it was helpful because I had probably more understanding of them from my, back, from my background. I knew who they were. I wasn't in that uh, group like J. Edgar Hoover for a while, denied they existed. That was absurd. They, they existed since... In that form, they existed since the 30s. I mean, uh, Lucky Luciani, Luciano was let out of jail to help us win the Second World War. Mm. They sent him to Sicily so he could neutralize the Nazis so that our invasion could take place all the way up in Salerno. We didn't have to work our way up from Sicily. I mean, they were extraordinarily powerful in Sicily, in New York, Las Vegas. Las Vegas was their city. Uh, Bugsy Siegel built it largely with their money. And then they got the central states pension fund to come in so they could launder all our money. But um, th those are the places where they had the most power, a lot of, very powerful in Chicago, too. Some cities not as powerful. But in New York, they, they, they controlled all private sanitation, which is a multi-million dollar business. They controlled the garment center. They controlled the meat market, the fish market, uh, and a good, a good many political figures had a lot to owe to them. They also, they also controlled the gay bars on the west side of Manhattan. They were all owned by um, mostly the Genovese family. And there was a guy in charge, his nickname was Mike Bender. He was in charge of the gay bars on the west side. And they were used for the purpose of extortion. Mm. So, that if, so that if somebody came in, that you know, in those days, this was, a, this was a hidden lifestyle, right? Right. So if a judge walked in, and there he is with a man. With a man, well, you surely be a picture of that. Uh, they controlled a lot of the places, the brothels, and so they'd have lots of pictures of that. And at the right time, if you get in front of the right judge, and you just have happen to have gotten a picture of you in a brothel or in a compromising position, not a bad time to have somebody visit him. So that scene in The Godfather where the senator. Is you know is caught in the brothel and it looks like he killed the girl, and therefore he has to do everything they want. They own him. That's a very very realistic depiction 
of what happened to a lot of political figures, where they found a way to compromise them. If it wasn't with sex, it would be with something else. Gambling. They had a gambling habit. They let them get in over their heads and then have something on the rest of their lives. Mm. Very, very insidious group. Very smart and extremely, extremely wealthy. Well, the documentary is Fear City. I'd like to, to believe that this sort of corruption is all in our past. I know recently you've been doing a lot of work uncovering, I would say, somewhat similar types of corruption uh, in today's uh, government and all sorts of places. Um, a couple of things, if I could take it to today. Um, uh, you talked about Black Lives Matter and what they're doing across the country. Now, there's a difference, of course, between the average person who just wants you know, to support uh, black lives and make sure nothing bad happens. Everybody's on the same page on that. But we're talking about the actual organization. You call them a domestic terrorist organization. Why? Absolutely. I mean, that, that, that's one of the major things that has to be analyzed about Black Lives Matter. Uh, the, the, the name, the slogan, Black Lives Matter, is more or less unobjectionable, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, Black Lives Matter. Maybe you would say it's sort of a negative pregnant. Where, where's the what about the other lives? Right. So you get into a little quibble over that. But if you, if you say, well, this is a group that's particularly worried about this one specific group of people, that's OK. We have that in America. Now, now you contrast it with the organization founded by Patrice Cullors, Garza and uh, Tometi, all three of whom are de- devoted Marxists, trained by a, a, a guy who was a weather underground convicted terrorist. And he trained them mm. for 10 years. Uh, the, the chief uh, person who raises their money, and they funnel it through two different organizations, FROP and Thousand Currents. Thousand Currents is run by a woman named Susan Rosenberg. Susan Rosenberg is a convicted terrorist. Mm. She was part of the Weather Underground. She was sentenced to 58 years in jail. And you're saying, well, what's she doing out of jail? Well, crooked Bill Clinton, you know, got her out of jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he, he pardoned this woman after 16 years in prison. You should know that at her sentencing, this woman said that the only thing she had any remorse for, she didn't kill the two cops who arrested her. Wow. She is the principal funnel for money to Black Lives Matter. I, I, have their, I have their book here, which nobody bothers to read, their, their statement of principles. Mm. And once you, read it, you, you, once you read it, you realize how effectively they've made fools out of the commissioner of the commissioner who took the knee, the commissioner of baseball, all those silly baseball players with Black Lives Matter on them. Mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter here, here, here the, the, the Black Lives Matter main principle uh, focus is to do away with the American family as we know it. They don't seem to like fathers. Uh, they hate white people. White people are inherently evil. Uh, we're all racist. We are. Whether we know it or not, we're mm-hmm. racist. Uh, America is an evil country. There's nothing good about it because it's infected with the sin of slavery and racism, and that overcomes anything else that we do because we're terrible people. Uh, They have a plan for overthrowing our government, which they're executing. The plan starts with um, completely rewriting our history. They've done a pretty good job in that with a lot of the textbooks and the schools and of kind of writing a history where most of our kids learn about what an evil country we are. Uh, then they, they destroy your heroes. That's what the burning down and the taking down of the statues are all about. That's not just like crazy, out of control activity. That's planned activity. You, you want to demoralize a country, first, first you make its history bad, 
And then you make every person associated with putting that country together an evil person. So we were founded by an evil person, Columbus. Our first, uh, fa the father of our country is an evil person, George Washington. The author of our liberty, who wrote the greatest document on liberty in the history of the world, is an evil person. Mm. Uh, Lincoln's even an evil person because he had some racial theories that, for his, for, that were not accept acceptable. Uh, he, had a, he had a fear that uh, the slaves weren't ready to be emancipated, but he did do it. Why Grant? Well, Grant, because his wife was a slaveholder, because he did win the war that uh, ended slavery. He could get a little credit for that, but no, his statue was taken down also. Um, every, I mean, every, every, one of our, uh, every one of our heroes, and that's how a country develops a, a sense of pride, right, through history and heroes. They're all very, very bad. Um, religion is the opiate of the people. They're very, very anti-religion. Um, said the, the, the family should be, women should not need husbands. Husbands just mess up families. Hmm. Um, we, shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't have private property. Property should be basically controlled by the state. Uh, we shouldn't have private education of any kind. Private education is banned should they get into office, they would do away with private education. That means no parochial schools of Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Islam. That means no charter schools. That means no um, at-home education. They basically want you to go to a state school. And they, and they also want you in daycare very early. That's how mommy is going to be able to you know, work and mm. not have to have a husband. Uh, who, who just messes things up because the kid's going to go to a state-run daycare. And then they have a whole bunch of things they're going to teach the kid. Uh, remember, this is a socialist Marxist yeah. organization. Yeah. And if you, if you read the organizing principles of Marx, they are following every cause of violence in, in, uh, in, in the main parts of the country. Create a sense of, dis uh, of the country being in great turmoil and chaos. They're funded by Soros, who's tries to create chaos everywhere for some reason that only he could explain. He does it in Eastern Europe. Uh, Soros, has, Soros has funded somewhere near 20 district attorney's races all throughout the yeah. country. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're people who should never be district attorneys. They hate police. They uh, let criminals out of jail. And now, of course, they're the ones who are doing all these crazy things like prosecuting those people in St. Louis for def just defending their lives. Yeah. The person doing that, Gardner, um, Soros put about four or five million dollars on her campaign. He's one of her favorites. Yeah, yeah. And she's one of his favorites. So this is a this is it's a scary we are, organization. We are, we are in a war. We're in a war for our way of life. We're in a battle for our way of life. If we elect Joe Biden with the weakness that he's shown. He hasn't condemned any of this. I don't yeah. even know if he understands it anymore. Yeah, but he, he doesn't have the doesn't have the backbone to handle something like this. Joe, I mean, even when Joe was healthy and mentally competent, he was a panderer and a weakling. Mm. I mean, he was constantly changing his position, never was a strong man, and now he's only half, got half, about a half a brain. Yeah, and we're seeing more and more and of that now. He, he's already caved into them so bad that, I mean, he doesn't just take a knee. I think he's constantly on his knees. <laughs> it's very true. And I know you're trying to get extra debates out of him. The more we can get him in front of the American people, I think, the better. Uh, Rudy Giuliani. Oh, I've, I've been negotiating the debates. I mean, yeah. I, I can tell you these people don't want to debate. No. They're sitting there. They're going to hold their breath during the hour and a half 
hoping that he just doesn't get like a two-minute blackout. I would be holding my breath, too, if I were them. Uh, believe me, uh, we're out of time, unfortunately. Rudy Giuliani, uh, former mayor of New York City, host <laughs> of the Common Sense podcast, and a huge part of the story told Netflix, uh, their documentary, uh, Fear City, New York City versus the Mafia. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I really Thank appreciate you. it. Thank you. We'll uh, be back in a second. Thank you. A couple of legendary comedians have come out and started talking about the whole woke nonsense that's going on. And it is really pathetic. First of all, John Cleese, who is, you know, Monty Python, obviously a legend. Um, he talks about uh, the difference with PC comedy these days. He says, uh, back then you could make jokes. There's plenty of people who are PC now who have absolutely zero sense of humor. I would love to debate in a friendly way a couple of woke people in front of an audience. And the first thing I would say is, please tell me a good woke joke. What they don't understand is that there's two types of teasing. There's really nasty teasing, which is horrible, and we shouldn't do it, full stop. But the other type of teasing is affectionate. You can tease people hugely affectionately, and it's a bonding mechanism. All humor is critical. You cannot get laughs out of perfect human beings. Uh, it's, it's very, very true. And, uh, he, you know, Cleese has had a couple of comments like this. Another person who uh, is a legend uh, from Spinal Tap, a, m- a bunch of different stuff. Uh, of course, I would say A Mighty Wind being one of his, some of his best work. But also The Simpsons, Harry Shearer. Uh, Shearer uh, has come out, and he was in an interview, and he was asked about the fact that, uh, if you know him, The Simpsons, you had this situation where um, uh, Hank Azaria, uh, who played Apu, has stopped wanting to do it because I guess a white person's not allowed to do the voice of a Indian character or something now. This ridiculous nonsense. Uh, Shearer isn't having any anything. He doesn't want any part of that, though. Uh, he says um, <laughs> he was asked about, you know, hey, he, he does Dr. Uh, Julius Hibbert, um, one of the uh, characters on the show who happens to be an African-American. That's right. This hate monger does that. He was asked about this. He said, I have a very simple belief about acting. Uh, The job of an actor is to play someone who they're not. So, like, you're going to play someone who you're not. If you're playing a white guy, then you just might be playing yourself. He says, the actor uh, said about uh, playing a range of characters, that's the gig. That's the job description. Uh, Shearer suggested he disagreed with a conflation between representation and performance. He explained his opinion is not one of self-interest. We don't get paid by the voice. So Shearer, completely right on this one, in my view. Back in a second. One of my favorite Pink Floyd song, it's uh, Money. I take the lyrics Literally, not as a sarcastic jab against capitalism meant to blow the minds of stone teenagers. Honestly, uh, maybe it's just the baseline. But the point being, I want more money. And like every good American, I want that money consequence free. Right. That's the way it goes. No, apparently not. There are consequences. Conservative Review's Daniel Horowitz is here to help us untangle the web of the coronavirus relief bill, a spectacle so complicated and ridiculous and childishly political that it could easily be a Pink Floyd rock opera. Daniel, thanks for coming on the program. Great to be with you, Stu. <laughs> this is uh, a bit of a mess. I mean, I, 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 I sit here as someone who does not want to spend more money, um, really on almost anything that the government does. But here we are in a pandemic where we've told companies that they need to shut their businesses down and do all sorts of crazy things. Uh, is it one of these things that is inevitable that we're going to be spending a couple more trillion more dollars? Look, it, it's only inevitable that you need water if you set a fire. Okay. The more you set the fire, you need the water. Um, we had this debate. You know, we were together a couple months ago, and I warned that this wasn't a stimulus because we were stimulating a dead body. 
See, we were paying people not to work. We were validating and legitimizing unconstitutional, illogical, and sometimes immoral actions taken by governors and county officials. And what we did is we flushed $2.5 trillion down the toilet. And then now we have nothing to show for it. And we come back and say, hey, we need some more. So what this bill does is it presupposes the veracity of everything the Democrats have done. The Democrats have violated civil liberties for the last four months. They've done so pursuing a strategy that overstates the threat assessment of the virus and that pursues a, a lockdown, a restriction, a mask wearing regime that has been proven not to work. So you would think now is the time for Trump and Senate Republicans to get their side of the story to the American people out and say, whoa, wait a minute. You governors are asking for more money to be bailed out of what you did. There's going to be some conditions. You're going to open up schools. You're going to stop the infringement on civil liberties, the arbitrary and capricious shutdowns of, you know, this business, this church could be shut down, but casinos in Nevada are, are OK to be open. That stuff stops <laughs> these interstate travel bans, which even during the Articles of Confederation were considered illegal. Somehow these governors are getting away with doing governors at the same time that they use the police to enforce unconstitutional mandates are actually going at are, are hamstringing the police from dealing with violent criminals. So what happened to the promise to defund these lawless sanctuary cities? Instead, what this bill does is it throws $110 billion at the education cartel as a reward for not opening schools. Okay? <laughs> 70 billion to K through 12, 35 billion to colleges. And with colleges not opening brick and mortar uh, facilities, I don't understand why they need that money, but basically so they could teach BLM stuff. Then it has a $6 billion education slush fund that could be used at the discretion of the governor. Then they say they're not giving more state aid, but what they are doing is that using the existing $150 billion to allow governors to now use it for plugging revenue shortfalls. Mm. Okay, so that's that's anything. They <laughs> It extends the time limit to when they could use it. Um, this bill repeats the same mistake as the first bill in the sense that it's too much and too little at the same time. So in other words, rather than situationally test the money and say, look, if you are shut down, we're going to pay you irrespective of your income. If you're not shut down, well, you're not shut down. We throw at a family of five like mine, it's going to be another like $4,000. Heck, I'll take it, but we're doing fine here at Blaze. You know, I wasn't shut down. Whereas someone who's right above that income threshold of 150000 they don't get anything if they had their business destroyed. Then it dumps a bunch of money at businesses in order to um, retain payroll, this PPP program you reference, that is the one legitimate area where I think we owe reparations. But it again repeats the same problem of extending this juiced up unemployment, which works against it and incentivizes people at that level, especially coupled with the generous expansion of food welfare, cash welfare, housing, all sorts of programs in there. I mean, nice. I, I couldn't even count it. The bottom line is, Stu, this bill makes Barack Obama look like Barry Goldwater, and they're just <laughs> getting started. Ugh. This is the opening bid. So you hear a lot of this uh, you know, debate back and forth. 
They're just arguing over, hey, do we agree with the Democrat premise and have this much money in the bill or this much money? Right, right, right. And I mean, and you break down the insanity of this bill incredibly well. I mean, and you watch uh, Daniel's podcast and you get this stuff in detail every single day. Um, let me go to the politics of this for a second, though, because I think the view of the Republicans is we're over a barrel here. Uh, we we have an election coming up. If we don't dump money into this economy right now, it's going to fail. And we're going to have a president with a, a, a an economy in downturn, tons of people out of work, complaining that the government didn't do enough. So we basically have to give in to every one of the Democratic demands to get this done or we are screwed. That's their argument. Sure. So that was their argument a couple of months ago. And our <laughs> yeah. argument back was that you're right. Trump cannot win reelection if you have a shutdown. So what they did is they funded a shutdown mm. and the states were able to get away with it cost free because the feds bailed them out. Now their message is the same thing. So all these governors are going to continue doing this. Remember, the recovery stalled because they went back into these policies. It might not be quite as bad as April was, but it's going to be really bad beyond the threshold that any incumbent could get reelected. So that is part of the problem that what I'm, I'm not even talking about the money anymore i mean again they all make barack obama look like barry goldwater you're gonna spend the money right but at least make policy changes that make them meet certain benchmarks make certain degrees of draconian um policies that are, that harm our civil li liberties but the economy as well off limit condition some of this this was part of it part of the problem is you know Stu, what does an economy look like if kids are home just that one thing alone, yeah. forget about the restriction on businesses, but just kids being at home, how could people work? That's a huge problem, including a lot of people who even work from home. That is is a very big challenge. Trump understood that, promised to fight it, and the state said, screw you, we're doing what we want. And now Republicans are like, hey, teachers union, here's another 70 billion for you. Here's another 35 billion for colleges. That totally doesn't need to be in a bill that's going to fund the businesses, you know, the PPP program. So that's the thing. This throws in the whole enchilada. And again, that was their opening bid. They never built up a debate. Wait a minute. You cannot do this. You cannot tie down Americans while allowing uh, rioters to run free. That is a winning argument. Americans understand that. None of our grievances are being aired in this bill. So this is not a compromise of any sorts. This is fully agreeing and presupposing the entire Democrat philosophy on this. And Stu, in the process, Republicans are engaging in political masochism because the states will have no incentive to ever get out of this lockdown mindset. Mm. Yeah, I, it really is amazing that this is how this breaks down every time. Um, let me let me run this uh, sort of crazy idea here by <laughs> tell me tell me if I have anything here. I was thinking about this the other day, and we hear a lot of people, especially business owners, who want to open up their business. They, they want to say, look, I want to go out there. I want the economy. I understand the risks. I want to go for this anyway, and I'll take my, I'll take my chances, basically. Um, is there almost a line here where I think most business owners would say, you know what? I will do, I will let me do what I want to do. Let me open up my business and I'll opt out of all this money. I don't need a gift from the government. I want to see if I can make it on my own. I think most business owners would actually, uh, uh, would say yes to that. And the ones that don't, then the government's essentially paying to go through this process of shutdown that they seem to want. And it seems to let both sides have a little bit of, of what they desire. 
They want a paycheck, not a handout. Mm. You hit the nail on the head, Stu. The, the impetus, the lead ship in this armada of all the 15, 20 things they want to do here are the business owners. The business owners don't want this. Now, yeah, they'll take it instead of nothing, <laughs> right. but the bottom line is this will bankrupt, bankrupt us forever. It will crush small business to you know at the expense of some of these medium to larger businesses that seem to suck up all the loans. And yet we're still we still land in the same place. And then the unemployment provisions they're working on will work against the employers. And same problem. The proper message that Republicans should have been pushing, which Trump promised from day one, but evidently is not fighting for even on bill number four, was a payroll tax cut. What I would promise is, hey, look, now that money is funny money and the debt just doesn't <laughs> matter, if we're going to bankrupt ourselves, at least do it in the form of a massive tax cut. You want to open a business for the next two years, no taxation. Mm. Massive surge in regulatory cuts. At least, okay, so Democrats, you get your welfare, you get your subsidies. We're all going to have one big giant debt bomb anyway. At least get some pro-growth incentives out of it. Exactly like you said, at least speak to those business owners that are like, look, I'm, I'm over the barrel. There's nothing I can do. I, I, I'm going to die either way. I'm willing to take that risk. Let me open up my business. Speak to them, not with some sort of convoluted loan problem pr pr program that does nothing but bankrupt us, doesn't solve the problem, and really just perpetuates a need for itself again and again. Mm, it's amazing. Um, I've got about one minute left here, Daniel. Give me a minute on uh, who you think the VP is going to be and how you think the election, what's the state of the race right now? Sure. I, th I think the VP is going to be some, a stealth person that mm. nobody ever heard of with no pre-existing notions because it's got to fit in with the dynamic of the election, which is the witness protection program. Right. I mean, <laughs> see no evil, hear no evil. Yeah. And again, it, it, this ties back into the bill. This ties back into Republicans giving into the lockdowns. Mm -hmm. As long as they have lockdowns, you have minus 10, minus 20, minus 30 GDP growth. You cannot win an election that way. Biden hides his dementia in a closet, doesn't come out. You don't want a VP that is that evident with their BLM agenda and the anarchy that could become a lightning rod. And people think, whoa, I don't want that. They want it to be a referendum on the status quo. And Republicans have to speak to that reality. Hmm. Daniel Horowitz, uh, Conservative Review and the Conservative Review podcast with Daniel Horowitz. Always great stuff. Daniel, thanks for coming on the program. Take care. All right. Back in a second. A lot of times we come to the end of the show and I don't know, what, what should you have taken from this program is a question that I ask myself. What, what should the audience take? And usually the answer to that is Andrew Cuomo was awful. It's the answer almost every single day. Andrew Cuomo was awful. Dot com. And today you can add on to that. Chris Cuomo is worse. Dot com. That's right. You and only you can enjoy an Andrew Cuomo is awful and Chris Cuomo is worse t-shirt. So we have the pictures. Look at this. And can you imagine walking down the street and these two shirts walking next to each other? That's America. Every, every person in America agrees with those two statements. Although some people might think Andrew Cuomo is worse and Chris Cuomo is awful. We don't have those shirts ready yet, okay? That's too much work. A lot of words. Go there, buy one. We'll see you tomorrow.